0: Probably more people have left the workforce to try to avoid COVID than
1: would have left it if they actually came down with it. Peter Schiff, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Rob, for inviting me on your show. So this is a bit of an anniversary, um, I wouldn't say groundbreaking edition, but uh, we're about 800 episodes in and we decided on our sixth anniversary on our 800th episode, we're actually gonna have a bit of a rebrand And we've gone from Disruptive Entrepreneur to now Disruptors. And you are our very first guest uh, as the new Disruptors brand. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking time. Now, I thought we'd do something a bit different because I know you've been on everywhere. I know you've been on Joe Rogan a lot and done many interviews. And I thought, how can I make it a bit more interesting for Peter who's been interviewed everywhere? So... If it's okay with you, we're gonna do five rounds. And round one, round one will be uh, <coughs> COVID and crashes. Mm-hmm. Round two will be economics and money. Round three will be politics and Peter Schiff. Round four will be Bitcoin and billionaires. And round five will be quickfire and fun. So okay. um, is, is that okay with you? Sure, sure. Those are some nice titles. So. <laughs> All right. So round one, COVID and crashes. What do you think, Peter, will be the full economic impact and fallout of COVID? Well, from what I
0: can tell, I think that it's more of a political economic problem than than a health problem. Um, You know, there are diseases. People get sick. They get colds. They get flu. And, you know, so they get COVID. And, you know, right now you've got this Omicron variant of COVID Uh, which, you know, a lot of people are getting, I know quite a few people that have had it, but most of them get over it very quickly. Some of them don't even have any symptoms. They just happen to test positive. Uh, From what I can tell so far, um, it's actually less deadly than your standard seasonal flu. So, you know, while I would just assume not have COVID, I think we are injuring ourselves with our policy response economically to a much greater degree than COVID because obviously, you know, if people are getting sick, they're not going to be productive, they're going to be at home while they're getting over, you know, their their illness. And so during that time period, they can't be helping to produce goods and provide services. Uh, But the way we're locking everybody down and quarantining, I mean, we're actually having more of that. I mean, probably more people have left the workforce to try to avoid COVID than would have left it if they actually came down with it. So the the problem is, you know, we're sidelining such a large percentage of the population. Uh, They're not working, uh, but they continue to consume. And the problem there is that governments are trying to offset the damage that they're doing by shutting businesses down and forcing everybody not to go to work. Obviously, if you're not going to work, you're not earning a paycheck. And so, you know, you're going to have a recession. But what the government is doing is they're saying, well, we don't want the recession. We just don't want people to work. So let's print up a bunch of money and send it out to all these people who aren't working so they can keep on spending, even though they don't have a paycheck. We'll give them a stimulus check and now they can keep shopping. And so the economy will keep going. But, you know, you can't consume if you don't produce. And if all you produce is paper money, then what you're going to get is inflation. And that's what we have. And you can see prices are going up uh, rather substantially all around the world. And that is going to continue. In fact, it's going to accelerate as we continue uh, to move down this uh, disastrous policy path.
1: And this rise in inflation, rise in prices, cost of living, etc., What's that going to do to the economy and how long do you think that's going to last?
0: Well, I mean, it's certainly going to be very problematic for average people. Um, If you're very, very wealthy, it it won't impact you as much. I mean, if the cost of eating doubles, I mean, eating is such a small part of your overall budget that you may not even notice it. But if you spend 10 percent of your income on food, and the price of food doubles, and now you got to spend 20% of your income on food and you were living paycheck to paycheck, what are you going to give up in order to afford to eat? You know, and the same thing with energy, same thing with your rent. You know, if your or insurance or all these costs are going up, it's going to have a much bigger impact on you know, middle income, lower income, and even more so than workers. It's retirees who are living on fixed incomes. Because at least if you have a job, you could get a raise. Maybe your raise won't keep up with inflation, but maybe it'll you know get you 80 percent of the way there. So you're, you're going backwards, but you're able to offset some of the increasing price with a higher wage. But if you're not working for a wage, if you've got a fixed income, you don't offset any of the inflation. Uh, so it's a huge decline in your standard of living. And it's hard to know how much a lot of the inflation will show up in the official government statistics. Because I think that we measure inflation inaccurately. I think prices are going up a lot faster than most government indexes would reveal. So if you just look at the numbers, you won't realize you know, how sick uh, the economy is. It's like if you got a thermometer that's broken and it always reads ninety eight point six, no matter what your actual temperature is, if you just look at that thermometer and, and just conclude that you're OK and ignore, you know, the symptoms you know, you're sweating or, you know, whatever, you're obviously got a fever, but you're looking at some broken thermometer uh, and and thinking that you're okay. You got to look at reality and not, you know, what the government is telling you. And I think more people are going to uh, experience this and they're going to realize that despite what the politicians are assuring them, uh, their situation is deteriorating.
1: So in the UK, Um, there's a a tax called VAT, value-added tax on all products you buy, services you buy, most of them at 20%. They haven't reduced that. There's corp tax, corporation tax, which has gone up from 19% to 25%. So that's a 30-odd percent increase. Income tax, 45% at the top bracket. National insurance has gone up 12.5%. So taxes are either staying the same or going up. Yet cost of living is going up and an ability to trade and produce is going down. Is it similar in the U.S. and what needs to be done?
0: Yeah, well, you know, on a federal level, there hasn't been a big increase in taxation. But I think on local levels, state and local governments may have been uh, some states have raised taxes and some probably municipalities. But I think in the U.S., most of the additional government is being paid for by printing more money. So instead of raising our taxes and taking our money, they're printing more money and taking our purchasing power. And so Americans are paying for the cost of government through a higher cost of living. So because the government is printing up so much money and spending it or giving it to other people to spend, prices go up. And so now everybody can afford to buy less because the prices of everything they're buying are so much higher. And that represents the tax. Because if prices are higher and you can afford less stuff, the stuff that you can no longer afford was basically taxed away from you.
1: So what's the solution to this? Well, to stop creating money, stop, stop, you know, causing
0: inflation. Um, But, you know, that would result in a lot of other short term problems like stock prices crashing, bond prices crashing, real estate prices crashing, financial crisis, bankruptcies. Uh, defaults. uh, A a lot of really bad things are going to happen if the Fed stops creating inflation. But of course, even worse things are going to happen if they keep creating inflation. So there's really no easy way out of it. There's just a bad way and a worse way. And unfortunately, we're choosing the worst way.
1: And um, so I guess it reminds me of the sort of Austrian versus Keynesian thought process of economics, minimum intervention would be Austrian. Keynesian would be more governmental uh, intervention. Where would you sit on that? Well, I'm obviously an Austrian, but you know, the Keynesians today aren't even Keynesians. I mean,
0: Keynes wouldn't even be a Keynesian today because at least Keynes, you know, and I disagree with his theories, but at least he understood that over time, budgets have to be balanced. So Keynes's idea was that during times where the economy is weak, the governments would stimulate the economy by running deficits. And then when the economy recovered and was strong again, they would run surpluses to pay off the debts that were run up when the economy was weak. And so that over the course of a total business cycle, the government national debt would not rise. It would just go up for a while and then come back down. Uh, but today we run, deficits during good times and then even bigger deficits during bad times. So there's never a surplus to pay off anything. And, you know, even Keynes knew that you can't borrow indefinitely, that you got to pay the piper. Well, we think that, you know, we're going to get a free ride. Uh,
1: But, you know, we're in for a rude awakening. So um, some people call you Dr. Doom. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, well, you know, they,
0: they I haven't really been called Dr. Doom in a while. I mean, they started calling me Dr. Doom back on CNBC when I was coming on in 2005 and 2006, warning about the housing bubble and the coming financial crisis. And they called me Dr. Doom because of that. And I used to say, well, you know, I'm Dr. Reality. And as <laughs> it turned out, I was right. I mean, the crisis that I was warning about that earned me that moniker happened uh and so i was dr reality you know they they were the ones that were living in a fantasy world i was just trying to uh you know bring reality into the conversation uh and you know the same thing i'm i'm warning today about a much bigger uh financial crisis currency crisis that is waiting for us here and you can call me dr doom if you want because i mean i am forecasting some economic doom for a lot of people, but it's not because I just want to make that forecast. That's what's there. That's what I see because I understand uh, the errors that the central banks and governments are making. And I know uh, what what the ramifications are, just like I knew that uh, when Greenspan was in charge, inflating the housing bubble. But you know, the powers that be did not. I mean, they thought we were enjoying genuine prosperity and I knew they were wrong. And the same thing is happening again. This is an artificial bubble inflated by central banks, the Fed in particular. And, uh, you know, the crisis that we have, uh, you know, laid the foundation for is now much greater than the one back then. But of course, the same people who were oblivious to the coming 2008 financial crisis are oblivious to this one you know, even though it's even bigger. But the causes are the same. I mean, it's the same uh, bad policies uh, that have caused the problems that have sown the seeds for the next crisis.
1: So when do you think the next crisis is coming? How big and how bad do you think it will be? And how long do you think it will last?
0: Well, you know, we I think the balls are already in motion because, you know, we had this big increase in consumer prices in 2021. Uh, We get the official CPI numbers, I think, on Wednesday here, but it's going to show that prices were up 7%, maybe a little bit more uh, during 2021. That would be the highest rate, I think, since 1982-ish. But, you know, if we still measured prices the way we measured them in 1982, we would have, uh, you know, reported about a 15% increase in consumer prices which would make it worse than any individual year during the 1970s or uh, 1980. So this was a horrible year of inflation. And I think this is, you know, really the beginning of the end, because now the Fed can no longer justify zero percent interest rates and quantitative easing. It needs to raise interest rates and it's now talking about raising interest rates. And it may, in fact, raise them. We'll see. It may not just talk, it may actually do it. But the problem is even the rate hikes they're talking about are too small and too late to make a difference because the Fed is talking about raising interest rates maybe to 1% by the end of the year and then maybe to 2% by the end of next year. Well, we got 7% inflation. You can't raise rates to 1% or 2%. Rates need to be higher than the rate of inflation if you want to slow the rate of inflation. So interest rates need to go, I don't know, 10%. But of course, we can't even get near 10%. We can't even get to 5%. We have so much debt because of all the past money printing and all the stimulus of the Fed, they have created a situation where it's impossible to fight inflation. And so they won't do it. And that's gonna be the seeds of the next crisis because as the Fed is, you know, uh, tightening up on its monetary policy to make it less loose, right? We're not gonna have tight money. We're just gonna have money that's less loose than it was before, the problem is less loose is not enough to sustain the asset bubbles, you know, in, you know, in a lot of these financial assets. So we get a crash, but it's not tight enough to actually bend the inflation curve. And so inflation is going to keep getting worse, even as the Fed is hiking rates, supposedly to fight it, that's going to lead to stagflation. That's ultimately going to cause the Fed to reverse course and start easing again even though inflation will be worse uh, than when it started its tightening uh, campaign. And, and somewhere along the way, the markets are going to wake up to this reality. And the dollar, or the bottom rather, is going to drop out of the dollar. And then we're going to have a currency crisis that will morph into a sovereign death crisis. And, and then it's all over. You know, then, then we have a, a, a real collapse because then the Fed has to let interest rates go way up and everything comes crashing down in a much more spectacular way than '08. except nobody gets bailed out. Everybody has to suffer the losses in their entirety and they'll be much bigger. Or they don't have the guts to do that and they just keep printing money anyway and they, they print the dollar into oblivion and we have hyperinflation, which of course
1: would be even worse. Hey, it's Rob here, just interrupting and disrupting the content because I want to do a massive shout out thank you to one of my amazing sponsors, Manscaped. So for 15 years, I've been nicking my wife's shampoo, shower gel, walking around smelling like a rose garden. And now finally, thanks to Manscaped, I have my own so they do toners they do deodorants for certain parts of your body they do body wash two-in-one shampoo and conditioner and the thing i like the most as you can see is the non-nick shaver so thank you to manscaped for being a great sponsor if you want to get any of these great manscaped products at a 20 percent discount on me go to manscaped.com and put in the promo code robm 20 robm 2 now So thanks again to my sponsors, Manscaped. Okay, so Peter, um, you wrote uh, a book called How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. Um, and you also uh, wrote a book called Crash Proof and Crash Proof 2.0. So, and the real crash. That's the more recent one. And the real crash. Yeah. So you've written a lot of books on this subject. So now let's turn into how can we combat this impending crash? How can we maybe even benefit? What upside opportunities are there? How can we prepare for it?
0: Yeah, well, those are good questions. We we certainly can't prevent it. Politicians and central bankers have delayed it. Uh, They've done a very good job at delaying it, but there's a heavy price to be paid for that delay because delaying it makes it worse when it happens. But that's OK for most politicians, because if it happens on somebody else's watch, well, then it's somebody else's problem. Uh, but, you know, the public, I mean, I'd rather do the right thing now and and get the pain over with than you know, keep doing the wrong thing and then ultimately have an even more painful experience. But on an individual basis, if you recognize. What? Is going to happen, and understand what's already happened. You can position yourself on a personal level to profit from you know what's going to unfold. I mean, there's always going to be winners and losers. I mean, in every economic crisis, there are winners. I mean, there are a lot of losers, and the losers, you know, you know, there's a lot of uh, stories about the losers. It's you know, it's very high profile, but fortunes are made during those those times. I mean, a lot of people uh, made fortunes during the Great Depression. I mean, they were able to buy up assets on the cheap that they never would have been able to buy. But for those circumstances, and that later ended up being, you know, a springboard to incredible wealth. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity uh, for people to get rich uh, while a lot of other people are going broke. Right. Uh, So the question is, how do you avoid going broke? and stay rich if you're already rich or maybe get richer or maybe get rich if you're not rich now. I mean, how can you take advantage of the circumstances? And I think what you need to do is you need to understand all of the artificially inflated assets and get out of those. So don't own the stuff that's going to crash, but own the things that are going to rise in value when all that stuff crashes. Uh, you know get out of the most overvalued currencies and into uh, More fairly or better valued cu- currencies or, or better yet get out of currencies completely and own real money have own gold and silver but own uh, assets in countries merging markets uh, Whose economies will will get benefit from what's about to happen um, you know certain Asset classes and businesses will thrive in this environment, because I think if the dollar crashes, the way I believe, uh, Americans are going to substantially reduce their their spending. And right now we have these record trade deficits. The world is sending a lot of goods to America that we can't afford and we didn't produce. Uh, But those are goods that the world produced. And, you know, they don't get to consume those goods. They send them over here to America. And we got them. And what did we give the producers? We gave them pieces of paper. We printed up some money and, and gave it to them. Well, when that money crashes, uh, they're not going to want it anymore. So all that merchandise isn't going to be shipped over to the United States. But that doesn't mean they're going to stop producing it. It just means somebody else is going to consume it. And so try to figure out who is going to consume what Americans are too broke to consume and you know start investing in those economies. Uh, where standards of living are going to rise and costs of living are going to go down. Uh, you know, because the world has been supporting the United States for decades, and that's been a, a big burden. And when that burden is no longer there, it's a huge windfall for the rest of the world because now instead of having to support America, they, they, they free up those resources uh, to invest, you know, in their own economies. They They have all those goods that now they can consume that previously were being... uh, diverted for American consumption. So Americans suffer, right? Because our ride on the global gravy train is over. Uh, We can't just consume anymore without producing, but the rest of the world has been producing. They just haven't consumed it all because they've they've sent their stuff here. Uh, So I think there's gonna be big changes in the the global economy, the global pecking order, relative values of currencies and assets and incomes. And I think if you're on the, the winning end of that transfer, you can do very well. I mean, I think I position myself, I think I position my clients to be on the winning end of that transfer. uh, And we're just, you know, sitting back and just, you know, watching it happen and waiting for it to play out.
1: So I've just uh, developed an apartment block, 159 tenant units. Mm -hmm. And my plan with that was to hold it forever. Um, I've bought some Bitcoin, though probably maybe less than five percent of my wealth. My plan was to hold that forever. Like to buy nice gold watches. My plan was to hold them forever. is there Is there an argument that you should just buy a fundamentally good as- asset and just never sell it? Well, when it comes to
0: your apartment complex, you know, I mean, if you've got a good rental income from that uh, complex, then there's no reason why you can't hold it because it's continuing to generate income for you. You're getting rent from your tenants. So as long as you have tenants and they're willing to pay rent uh, and your rents, you know, exceed the cost of you know, maintaining the property, property taxes, you know, insurance, maintenance, you have a good cash flowing asset, then you don't need to sell it. Now, obviously, if something got very expensive, if somebody offered you a price that was way out of line with that income that you're generating, you might consider selling it and investing the money someplace else uh, mm-hmm. where you can get a better return. But as long as uh, the real estate is strung off income or maybe, you, you know, you can move into one of the apartments yourself. I mean, you can use it or you can have family members stay there. I, don't know. I mean, it's real. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you could hold that forever if you wanted to. You don't have to make that termination now. Forever is a long time and circumstances may change. But I certainly wouldn't want to hold Bitcoin forever because eventually it's going to have zero value. I mean, it has zero value right now, but it has a price, right? The price of Bitcoin is around $40,000 a coin, maybe a little bit higher, forty-one, something like that. Uh, but its value is zero. I don't care what the price is, it has no value. But just because some idiot is willing to buy it, it has a price. But you can't always count on those idiots being there because eventually they run out of money or they, they, they come to their senses and then the price is going to implode. So with Bitcoin, you know, it's like that old game of uh, musical chairs, right? You can't play the game forever because otherwise the music stops and, you know, you're out. You got it. You got to have a chair. So you got to get rid of your Bitcoin before the music stops. So, you know, I mean, if I were you, I would just sell it all right now. You know, but that that's me.
1: Well, we'll come to Bitcoin a bit later on. Um, we've talked more about economy and less about COVID uh, in this chat. So just one question on, on um, COVID and the vaccines and take as long as you like or not. Um, you obviously know Joe Rogan well. You've been on his show four times and he's recently experienced some cancelling and some censorship, Twitter, um, YouTube, obviously pretty open about don't want to take the vaccine, cancelling comedy shows if people are forced to take the vaccine, interviewed Robert Malone, that all got shut down. What are your thoughts on all of that cancelling and censorship and your views? Yeah, you know, I had Robert Malone over at my house a few weeks ago. Uh, He was just a
0: guest and we had people over and he was, you know, talking to us about some of the same things he talked to uh, Joe Rogan about. But I agree with Joe Rogan. I mean, first of all, I, I think this is a real assault on individual liberty and freedom for the government to try to force people uh, to take these uh, take these shots uh, if they prefer not to. I mean, everybody's circumstances are different. Uh, in certain people, the risks associated with getting these shots exceed the risk of COVID. I mean, certainly for young people, uh, children, uh, you know, there's no reason for them from what I can tell to get any of these shots. Uh if they get COVID, nothing's gonna happen to them. You know, that, that may not be the case from uh from, from the shots. So uh but I think that people need to be able to decide for themselves, uh, you know, how they wanna handle their health. Uh the government shouldn't be, you know, doing that for you. And you know, a lot of people say, well, but it's for the collective good of society. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's a socialist uh, mindset that I, is very dangerous. I mean, we, 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 we want to elevate the individual. We're not a collectivist society where we all sacrifice our own, uh, you know, self-interest for some supposed collective good. You know, I mean, that that is, you know, that's how they've been able to con people with all different forms of socialism. The, the individual has to be supreme. We don't sacrifice ourselves for, for the hive. You know, we do what's in our interest and when it's in our family's interest. And I think everybody pursuing their own self-interest is the beauty of capitalism. That's why capitalism works so well and, and, and socialism doesn't. But, you know, if people want to mitigate the risk of getting COVID, Uh, And if they think uh, the vaccines will do it, they can take the vaccines. You know, if somebody is older, you know, if you're in your 70s, 80s, 90s, I mean, maybe you think, oh, if I get COVID, I, you know, I I may not survive. I'm really old. I've got some other health issues. Or maybe you're really obese and you've got all kinds of things. You say, well, I I better take this vaccine. But if you're young and you're healthy, you know, you may feel that, you know, well, what's, you know, I'd rather get COVID. than uh, than 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 the vaccine, and there are a lot of people that have had COVID, like Joe Rogan. He's like, I've had it. I've got antibodies. Why do, why should I get one of these shots? I've already got something better. I had the I had the disease and I recovered. You know, I've got a natural immunity. What do I need? Uh, you know, these experimental drugs for? I mean, he has a right to make that decision. Uh, the government shouldn't you know force him to do that. And, you know, businesses and people, you know, should make their own decisions. If a company wants to require its customers to show that they've got uh, a vaccine then then the business can do that. Uh, But the government can't mandate it. It's up to the free market. If I'm a person and I don't want to go to a restaurant where people don't have vaccines, then I won't go to a restaurant unless I know that restaurant is making sure everybody's been vaccinated. I mean, let the free market sort all this out. Um, you know, I mean, especially when you look at the fact that everybody who's getting uh, these vaccines is still getting COVID. They're getting it and they're spreading it. So I don't even see how by getting the shot, I reduce the risk of infecting somebody else when I'm just as likely to get COVID as somebody who doesn't have one of those shots. And I'm just as likely to spread it. I mean, everybody I know that has Omicron, I know so many people that have it, and every single one of them was vaccinated. So, you know, that it, it, didn't, it didn't do anything. Uh, now, people want to say, well, maybe it would have been so much worse had they not been vaccinated. Well, maybe, maybe not. But still, they got it and they're spreading it. So what difference does it make to the other people, whether they got vaccinated or
1: not? Thank you, Peter. And then the additional um, layer on top of that, which is people getting cancelled and content deleted off media platforms for expressing those views? Yeah. Well, look, first of all, you know, these again, these are private companies
0: when you're talking about a Twitter or a Facebook or an Instagram. Uh, So they kind of have a right to do what they want. But the problem is these companies enjoy a lot of protection from government. Uh, They have erected a lot of roadblocks to competition and they give these companies uh, special protections against, uh, you know, defamation uh, lawsuits or things of that nature. Uh, so you know, uh, once they've you know been given those kind of uh, special protections on the on the under the basis that there's some kind of public forum, uh, then you know it starts to look a lot more problematic to me. That look, it's either one or the other. If you're going to get these benefits, then don't censor anybody. Uh, and if you want to censor what people are saying, then you can't have any gov- government benefits uh, based on the fact that you're like the you know, the modern day version of the public square when you're you know, policing who's allowed to talk in the public square. But, you know, I, I think it's very interesting that you have this effort to suppress uh, any information that would suggest that, you know, maybe the vaccines aren't as effective as the government claims or the drug companies claim. But why would you do that? I mean, To me, if you're going to suppress that kind of information, it's because you're worried that maybe it's right, because if it really isn't true, then why suppress it? I mean, I'm allowed to go out there and and, and say all kinds of crazy things. Right. I can say that. You know, hey, we never went to the moon. It was all a fake. I could say that there's space aliens that the government is hiding somewhere in some secret area. I, I can claim that Elvis Presley is still alive and he's my neighbor. I can say all kinds of nutty things, but nobody suppresses that, you know, because you can obviously refute it. I mean, it's, you know, you don't need to, uh, you know, censor people from saying stuff that's wrong. You can just overwhelm it with evidence that, that it's wrong. But if you have a strong case to be made and you can't refute it, then maybe all you can do is shut it down. So to me, it shows that they they don't they 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 don't like this. And the question is, why? You know, why are they so against the public hearing the other side of the story? Because if the other side of the story is wrong, all right, well, okay, no problem. We can prove that it's wrong. But if they can't, You know, what are the forces that are that are driving this that, oh, no, no, we we, we can't say anything that may cause somebody not to want to get a vaccine. And the reality of it is this actually could be boomeranging and being counterproductive because the very fact that everybody is trying to censor this is creating the impression that I just said, wait a minute, the government doesn't want me to hear this. It must be true. Right. Oh, no. Maybe somebody who was going to voluntarily take the vaccine. Now they don't want it because now the government is trying to force them to do it. Well, if you're trying to force me to do it, maybe it's not good for me. I mean, because if it was good for me, I would voluntarily do it. But the minute you're trying to force me to do it against my will, I got to ask myself why, you know, I mean, because if it's in my self-interest, I'm not an idiot. I'm going to do it, especially if it's free. No one even has to pay for it. So, hey, here you can get this free thing. It's great for you. And then they say, but you have to have it. Well, wait a minute, you know? And so they're, they're kind of feeding the, the theory that there's something going on here because it doesn't smell right uh, that the government would be acting the way that they are. So they're, they're probably creating a bigger opposition to these vaccines than would otherwise be the case if they didn't
1: try to mandate them. Round two, Peter. <laughs> so round two is economics and money. Um, And we've answered a couple of them, so this may be a slightly shorter round, but um, my most successful book that I've written is called Money, and I'm writing a sequel called The Laws of Money. And so I'd love it if you could share what you believe is a fundamental law of money that can't be broken, that everyone needs to know.
0: Well, money is supposed to be the most liquid and the most marketable commodity. That's what money is. By definition, I mean, before we had money, uh, we we conducted commerce through barter. So, you know, you traded uh, goods and services, you know, with other people, but you had to pay for the services and goods you bought with the goods and services that you had or that you produced. So if I was a uh, a butcher and you were a baker, I, I wanted some of your bread. You know, I would trade you some of my meat. Well, what if you're a vegetarian and you don't want my meat? Well, I can't get your bread because all I have is meat that that you don't want. Right. Um, and, And so it wasn't very efficient. And then, of course, you know, how much meat do I need to give you for a loaf of bread? Or how many loaves of bread do you need to give me for, you know, for a steak? I mean, what's the what's the relative value? It's hard to say. It was very cumbersome. I mean, it worked because that's how people lived until man invented money. And so what money was, was a commodity that everybody could agree on that, you know, it was universally accepted in exchange for other goods and services. So I could buy your bread and I can pay you in money instead of my meat. And then you could take the money and buy whatever you wanted with it. But the money was also a valuable commodity like bread or like meat. And so a lot of things, you know, were money. But ultimately metal ended up being the best money and they made metal into coins and the best metal for money was gold. And so, you know, over time we learned that gold was the best form of money and gold functioned as money uh, very efficiently for thousands of years, you know. Uh, But eventually man developed uh, money substitutes, currency which could circulate, you know, alongside of money uh, and, 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 and be a medium of exchange in a unit of account. But the reason that those money substitutes worked is that they were backed by actual money. So paper money, currency was backed by actual money. So if you had, you know, one hundred dollars, it was really an IOU for one hundred dollars worth of gold that sat in the vault somewhere. And what gave that piece of paper value was the gold that was in that vault backing it up. Right. So uh, and, and and it would function. But, you know, 1971, ever since then, and we, we, we finally cut the last ties that remained to real money and paper, you know, Federal Reserve notes, we now have this fiat monetary system uh, that I think is doomed to fail because it, it can't work, because what we're using as money is not real money. Uh, and so it isn't a, a real commodity. So if I go to a baker, when I give the baker gold for his bread and he gives me bread for my gold, the baker gets a real a commodity, a metal gold that can be used. And I get, you know, bread that I can eat. But when I give the ba- baker money, paper, Federal Reserve notes, fiat for his bread, I get real bread that I can eat. He gets nothing. He gets, you know, a piece of paper, has no real value. Uh, And eventually it collapses because the government can just create this paper out of thin air as much as it wants. And that's what we've been doing. And eventually the confidence is lost because it's all ultimately a confidence game. Uh, Gold has value because it's a metal, because it has unique uh, properties that, that give it value that we desire. Paper money has value because people think it has value. People think it has value because other people will accept it in exchange for goods and services. So that gives it value. But the only reason people will accept it is because they're confident that other people will accept it. Uh, but eventually the confidence goes and you know, the currency collapses. And I think that's where we're headed you know, for most major economies. A lot of minor economies, have seen this already. I mean, you can look at Venezuela, right, you can look at Zimbabwe. There's all kinds of, you know, examples of this massive hyperinflation. But there have been lots of examples in, you know, in uh, you know more powerful countries, more industrial. Argentina at one point, I think, uh, was the fourth richest country in the world. Uh, but it destroyed its currency. I mean, so, you know, you can be a very rich country. I mean, look what happened to Germany and the, the Reichsmark, I mean, after this, the First World War. Germany was a rich, powerful country, and they destroyed the currency. Uh, You know, so a lot of rich, powerful countries destroy their currency. So it's not going to be unprecedented what's going to happen. I mean, maybe in scale, because I don't think a nation as large as America, the United States, ever destroyed a country, a currency as as important as the U.S. dollar. But I think we're going to succeed in doing
1: that. And then what's the solution to replace fiat currency to go back to a um, a more... I don't know, back to the fundamentals of money. Yeah, I think we go back to
0: the type of monetary system that existed before 1971 um, and maybe even before 1913, which is when we introduced the Federal Reserve. I mean, I don't think governments or countries need central banks. I think on balance, they do more harm than good. So I don't think we need them. But I also don't think governments should try to play the role of central bankers either. I think that money needs to be a creature of the free market, right? Money needs to be produced by, you know, the market, not by the government. And if the government wants money, it needs to tax it and collect it through taxation, right? Uh, legitimately. And, and that's what we did when, 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 you know, we were on gold standards and the money was created privately. Uh, the government would buy the gold and turn it into coins and make it into legal tender. That was fine, but it was the free market that 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 decided what money was and uh, that created money and brought it into existence. The government the government just coined it and established uh, you know uh, a, a you know a unit of account and the, the weights and measures of the of of the the money you know how much gold was a dollar, how much silver equaled a dollar. and that's what they did. But the gold and silver was created by the, the, the free market, by miners who went out and, and produced uh, produced the gold. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then if the government wanted gold, it had to levy taxes and collect it from the population. They couldn't just print it into existence the way they do now, so they couldn't run these big deficits. I mean, they could borrow money, but there's certainly a limit to, to what they could borrow. But there's no limit to what they can print. Although the problem is, you know, if you exceed the limits, you destroy the value of what you're printing, which is where we're headed. But I, I think we can go back to an honest monetary system. I think it would work great. I mean, it worked great in the past. I think it can work even greater in the future if you marry it to modern technology and you know use the internet and use blockchain uh, to make it even easier to transact in gold now than it was in the past. I think uh, I think it'll work extremely
1: well having real money, Peter. You um. You've said that the system is flawed and we need more capitalism. What does needing more capitalism mean?
0: Well, it means you need less government. I mean, government is inhibiting capitalism from working. Uh, You know, capitalism will lead to the most optimal allocation of resources, leading to the highest standard of living for the most uh, number of people. That's what capitalism does. And it's great at doing that. It's very efficient. Uh, But, you know, whenever government gets in the way of the process with regulations and taxes and subsidies and all sorts of things that distort this efficient allocation process and you end up with a less than optimal allocation of land, labor, capital so that everybody collectively has a lower standard of living. And so the more we can get government out of the economy and let market forces back in, we are going to have a more prosperous society.
1: Let's move on to round three, Peter. Thank you. So um, as a Republican, do you endorse the January 6th riots?
0: Well, I mean, I ran as a Republican uh, when I ran for Senate in 2010. Um, so I, I, am certainly closer to what would be a modern day Republican than I am to a Democrat. But philosophically, I'm more aligned with the libertarian party and and, and, and their ideals. Uh, so I'm more of a libertarian in that sense than a Republican. Now, as far as what happened in the Capitol, first of all, I don't really call it a riot, you know, I mean maybe it was a protest kind of that went too far and went astray and there probably are a lot of things that agitated that. But, you know, people were not there rioting. I mean, you know, they call it insurrection, you know, a coup d'etat. I mean, they didn't bring rifles, They, they brought their cell phones, right? They weren't shooting bullets, they were taking selfies. Uh, you know, so I don't think it was like, you know, they, were, they, they had any intention of overthrowing the government. There was never a point where there was a danger that, like, they were going to take over uh, the government. Um, and yes, there were some lives lost, which is a very unfortunate tragedy. But that doesn't mean that what happened was an attempted coup uh, or anything of the sort. And I do think that there probably were a lot of people who were at that protest. Um, that honestly believed that there was fraud in the election and they have a right to express uh, that frustration or that opinion, because, you know, forget about the fact that whether or not there was fraud or not, because I don't even want to get into whether or not there was. But obviously, it's possible that there could be fraud in an election. And if not in this election, there could be fraud in a future election. And what if there is? Right. Well, then the, the results of the election are not legitimate. And you have to have a process to challenge a fraudulent election. Uh, you can't just say, well, we have to accept whatever the government tells us, and, 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 and you can't uh, you know, go through a process if potentially there was fraud, because then the government is, well, we, we, can, we can do all the fraud that we want because we've now set a precedent that, well, you, know, you, can't, you can't challenge an election just because you think uh, it was, there was fraud involved. You, you have to be able to. And, you know, but this particular time, and I think we've had lots of challenges to election results. I mean, a lot of times a loser in an election demands a recount. You know, he says he thinks there was fraud. Look into this. Look, okay. I mean, you know, there's a whole process. I mean, you know, because there's an election and they don't certify the results, you know, immediately. So there's time to look into allegations. There's a whole legal process. So, you know, you don't have to just accept at face value uh, the raw vote counts at the initial, you know, initially, but I think there were people that actually thought that uh, uh, there was fraud involved in, in, in the election. You know, maybe there was, maybe there wasn't, but they certainly uh, had a right to express and protest the fact uh, that they held that belief.
1: Thank you, Peter, for answering that. So um, what do you think of the direction the Republican Party has taken since 2010 in your Senate run then?
0: Well, you know, I didn't like the direction it took under Trump. I mean, I didn't I, I, I didn't necessarily object to the things Trump was saying uh, on the campaign trail because I largely agreed with a lot of the stuff that he said. Uh, he was railing against our trade deficits and the degradation of our industrial base and the incompetence of uh, past uh, presidents and administrations and bad trade deals. And, uh, you, know, we, you know, we were a shadow of our former self and we needed to make America great again. We needed less government, more freedom. We had too much debt. The Federal Reserve was too political, that they were printing too much money and keeping interest rates artificially low and inflating bubbles. So Trump said a lot of things on the campaign trail that, that I was saying myself, you know, when I was running in, 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 uh, in 2010. The problem is the minute he got elected, he became exactly what he criticized. You know, he, he he was now coming up with fake government numbers and, and he was demanding the Fed print more money and artificially lower interest rates. And he was making deficits bigger and uh, increasing government spending, military spending, welfare spending. I mean, he did everything that he criticized prior administrations for doing. And, you know, he left the country in worse shape than he found it. That was a big problem. And, you know, he steered a lot of the Republicans in the wrong direction. I think. Uh, But, you know, meanwhile, the Democratic Party has moved even further to the left. You know, I mean, now the Democratic Party is really the Socialist Party. The Republican Party is the Democratic Party. The Democrats are the Socialists. I mean, there's nobody really that represents limited government, fiscal responsibility, sound money, stuff like that. I mean, the party, that's just a Libertarian Party, but they're they're insignificant in the the political landscape because they're not going to go anywhere. Right? They don't have any, uh, you know, representation in Congress, and nor are they likely to get any. Uh, so yeah, I don't like what's happened to either party. I don't like what's happened to the Democrats. They're worse than they used to be. The Republicans are worse than they used to be. Of course, now are they a little better now, now that Biden is president? But you know, of course, it's disingenuous because you have these Republicans now who are criticizing Biden's spending. Well, where were they when Trump was spending? You know, they're criticizing the, the inflation that we're having now. Well, we had inflation under Trump. It just wasn't showing up yet in the numbers, but the inflation comes from financing budget deficits by printing money. And that's exactly what we did when Trump was president, yet none of these Republicans had a problem with it. Now, all of a sudden, they got a problem with it, you know, when there's a Democrat. I mean, they, now they want to talk about, uh, you know, not raising the debt ceiling. Okay, well, why'd you raise it when Trump was president? I mean, what's the difference? I mean, if you don't like the debt, then don't raise the ceiling. Doesn't matter if the Republican, if a Republican is president, don't raise the ceiling. You know, that was one of my signature issues when I ran in 2010. I wanted to be the vote in the Senate to make sure that the debt limit was not raised under any circumstances. I was, I would have filibustered it. Uh, I want the government to cut spending. You know, whenever they get to the debt ceiling discussions, they say, you know, America always pays its bills. So we have to raise the debt ceiling. The reason we have to raise the debt ceiling is because we never pay our bills. We just go into debt instead of paying our bills. I want to stop the debt. I don't want the debt to pile up anymore. You know, I want to no more deficit spending. And let's actually deal with our bills. Now, of course, our bills are unpayable. That's why we have to keep borrowing. So we need to deal with that. We need to restructure our debts. You Know we can't repay them, but going deeper into debt is an
1: even bigger problem. Would you run for office again? You sound quite passionate about this. <laughs> ah, I mean, I don't
0: know. I mean, never say never, right? But I have no immediate plans to run for anything.
1: So, round four, Peter um, Bitcoin and billionaires. So, um What do you think of the influence of the big tech companies on the world right now? You know, you might say Apple, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera. What do you think of their influence on the world? Well, you know, they obviously have a substantial
0: influence. And again, I think part of that uh, is a function of a cozy relationship that they have with, with government, special protections that they get from government, from competition. But also, I think they have been among the primary beneficiaries of the Fed monetary policy, which has inflated these asset bubbles and has, uh, you know, elevated the value of their stocks. And that has given them undue uh, influence because they can take these overvalued stocks and, you know, use them as currency to buy out competitors and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And none of this would be happening in an environment of sound money with much higher interest rates. So, you know, these these companies have been the primary uh, beneficiaries. I mean, there's obviously been substantial losers as a result of this policy. Uh, but, you know, these companies are going to, uh, you know, bear a, a, a pretty a large share of the burden when the air comes out of this bubble. So they're going to they're going to they're going to you know, get payback eventually when their share prices collapse. Uh, and maybe that's already started. You know, we've already seen the beginning of that so far in twenty twenty one. It's uh, or twenty twenty two. It's been a, a disastrous year already uh, for a lot of these high flying companies. You know, no earnings or, or small earnings relative to their prices. Uh, so maybe the day of reckoning is uh, is close at hand.
1: So we're back to the Bitcoin question, Peter. I've tried to delay it as long as possible. (laughs) Um, So you tweeted recently, don't wait for the bubble to deflate completely before recognizing what it was. Just open your eyes and your mind and sell your Bitcoin now while others still have their eyes closed and minds shut. And I think most Januarys, you've been sort of, you know, saying, you know, get out of Bitcoin or many Januarys, and it still seems to be here. So why is it going to go to zero? I mean, you've probably said it before, but it's still here. It won't go away.
0: Uh, it's still here, you know, uh, but, you know, yeah. So, I mean, Bitcoin's price is about the same as it was a year ago. In fact, relatively soon, probably within the next few days it will be negative on a year over year basis. And you need to ask, why is that? Because in 2021, there really was a record amount of hype surrounding Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I mean, like I've never seen, and not just hype, but massive advertising campaign from all sorts of crypto related companies that got started up in the, you know, in the uh, IPO, SPAC wave, of 2021. So, I mean, Bitcoin was really shoved down everybody's throat in 2021. I mean, especially look at a network like CNBC, nonstop uh, crypto ads. I mean, one ad ad after another nonstop throughout the day. And then their their list of guests, uh, including all these pumpers from the Bitcoin world and various companies out there touting uh, Bitcoin with pie in the sky forecasts of spectacular price appreciation and all of the on air, you know, hosts and, you know, they're all agreeing. I mean, nobody is really uh, challenging any of these people, uh, despite how ridiculous, you know, their forecasts are, what they're saying. And despite all this positive press, right, and massive money spent, to convince people to buy basically nothing, worthless tokens. Why didn't the price go up? Because lots of people were buying, right? And you had these institutions, right, come in and start buying Bitcoin. Why didn't all that buying drive up the price? That's because there was somebody else selling, right? The the real money was getting rid of Bitcoin in 2021. That was the big opportunity. The average person who bought Bitcoin in 2021, is way down on that buy. Uh, you know, Bitcoin got as high as 69000 and right now it's around 41000 uh, You know, that's a pretty substantial decline in, you know, in a few months. Uh, but it's still got a long way to go uh, because ultimately it doesn't have any value. It has the perception of value, and because people perceive value where it's not there, they're willing to to buy it and there's a price associated with that perception. And as long as people think they can get rich buying bitcoin, they'll buy bitcoin. But when they no longer believe they're going to get rich, they won't buy it. And when they think they're going to get poor if they keep holding it, then they're going to sell it. And you know, you, you this is, you know, billionaires in bitcoin, the bitcoin billionaires bought their bitcoin a long time ago. Right? If you're a billionaire buying Bitcoin today, you're not going to be a billionaire if you buy a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, But people became billionaires getting in early and now they're cashing out. Uh, But the people who are buying now are the bag holders. And, you know, uh, the big push was to get the institutions on board. And they may have succeeded to a small degree in 2021, suckering in some institutional money. But I think that after being burned so badly, uh, I think the institutions that put their foot in the water and, and now see how cold it is, I think they're they're not going into the pool. Uh, so the mar- I think the, the price is headed down. And, you know, there's a lot of leverage in Bitcoin now that didn't exist in the past because a lot of people who bought Bitcoin, you know, when it was a lot lower in price, they're sitting on these huge gains, paper gains. Uh, And they want to spend some of that wealth. They want to buy a new car. They want to buy a new house. They want to travel. But in order to do that, they'd have to sell their Bitcoin. And they don't want to sell their Bitcoin because they're so greedy. They think it's going to keep going up. And so they don't want to sell. Plus, if they sell, they have to pay a capital gains tax. They don't want to pay that. So a lot of people have just been borrowing against their Bitcoin. They've been taking out loans and they pledge their Bitcoin as collateral. And now they go out and buy stuff with the money they borrowed. And they didn't have to pay any taxes because they never sold any Bitcoin. Well, here's what's going to happen uh, to to those people. Bitcoin is going to crash. Their collateral is going to get sold in a margin forced liquidation because it's no longer uh, worth enough to collateralize the loan. So now they're going to have to sell all their Bitcoin at a lower price. And if they bought it a long time ago, they're still going to have a gain. So now they're going to have to pay a tax, too. So a lot of people are going to get wiped out on the way down in in crypto. And I think the um, the leverage is going to really accelerate the collapse because those forced sales happen in a vacuum, right? All of a sudden you've got to sell and, you know, whatever the market happens to be is the price that's going to get. Well, what if the buyers aren't there? There's no market makers. There's no specialists. There's no, you know, limits. uh, There's nothing. And so Bitcoin can go from forty thousand to ten thousand to five thousand. I mean, you know,
1: in a few in a few hours, even if the bids aren't there. For this bit, I need to read you three tweets. Okay. Um, So, um, well, first off was your Instagram quote, which is, "When politicians aim their weapons at the billionaires, they always hit the middle class the hardest." And then another tweet from Dogecoin co-creator. Elon Musk is and always will be a self-absorbed grifter. And then a tweet from Elizabeth Warren, which said, let's change the rigged tax code so the person of the year will actually pay taxes and stop freeloading (laughs) off everyone else. So I've put those three comments together to maybe have a quick discussion around the attack on billionaires and the fact that they should be paying way more taxes. Are the big tech companies and the billionaires evading and avoiding all taxes? And what's your thought on the big criticism of them? Well, I
0: mean, first of all, I think Elon Musk uh, is going to pay more taxes in twenty twenty one than any American in history ever paid in one year. He sold a lot of Tesla stock and is going to get a big tax bill. So to say that he's not paying taxes is just a lie. Um, But of course, uh, billionaires pay a lot of taxes, even if they don't pay them directly. Think about all of the jobs that billionaires create. Right? They, they hire lots of people and pay them money. Well, those people that are earning that money are also paying taxes and they wouldn't pay those taxes if they didn't have those jobs. So if the billionaires created the jobs, they created the tax base. So all the taxes that are being paid by workers are, in effect, the result of the businesses created by the employers. Uh, So billionaires are responsible for a tremendous amount of tax revenue flowing into the government, right? Also, of course, a lot of people become billionaires by inventing uh, products, coming up with things that make our lives better. And of course, that benefits the government too. And the government collects taxes, right? There's sales taxes. When when I want to buy one of these new products that some billionaire invented, the government gets a a tax off of that. A lot of jobs get created uh, around these new inventions and you know, better ways to do things. So the billionaires are doing a lot to help the country. In addition to providing governments with lots of tax revenues, they make our lives better. They, they, they come up with products and services that we value. And without those billionaires creating those services, we, we wouldn't have them. You know, most Americans never invent anything. They, 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 they never employ anybody. You know, they just go through life consuming what other people produce and, 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 and collecting paychecks that other people write, you know. So to try to say that, oh, you know, these billionaires are getting a free ride or they're not paying their fair share, it's complete nonsense. It's because Elizabeth Warren doesn't understand capitalism, doesn't understand how a market works, doesn't even realize uh, how her salary is being paid because Elizabeth Warren's the one that doesn't pay taxes. She, she lives off of taxes. The taxpayers pay her salary. The fact that she gives some of that money back is irrelevant because she got it all from the government in the first place. So if she gives back a little of what she got, she's still a net recipient of government money. People that work in the private sector are paying in. People working in the public sector are drawing out. So it's the politicians that are getting a free ride like Elizabeth Warren, uh, not uh, entrepreneurs like uh, like, 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 um, Elon Musk. Now, I know Musk is a bit of a... Uh, you know, not the greatest example because Tesla does get government subsidies, you know, for solar, which I'm opposed to. So he's not the poster boy for the best, you know, uh, free market actor when, you know, he's got so many deals with government uh, for, you know, subsidies to his product. But I don't blame Musk for taking advantage of the subsidies. I blame the government for creating the subsidies that allow them to take advantage of it, because people will take advantage of whatever opportunities they have. Uh, It's the the problem is the government should not be in a position to give out uh, those perks. Right. So, you know, it's the government's fault, not not Elon Musk's fault. But also, of course, if you think about it, if billionaires paid more taxes themselves, right, let's say, you know, billionaires paid half of what they earned and they sent it to the government, right? So Elizabeth Warren would be very happy that these billionaires were were paying these taxes. What would the consequence be for the economy of billionaires sending a lot of their money to the U.S. government? Right. Because the consequences would be grave, not for the billionaires, but for the economy, because let's say a guy is earning, you know, a hundred million dollars a year. And right now he's paying, you know, 20 billion dollars a year, 20 20 million in taxes. And Elizabeth Warren says, no, 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 you need to pay 50 million in taxes, right? 20 million is not enough. You need to pay 50 million, right? Well, let's say that guy starts paying 50 million instead of 20 million. What is going to change in his life? You know, is he going to have to reduce his lifestyle, is he going to have to, you know, not travel as much, you know, uh, not, you know, buy as nice a car, uh, not, you know, do all the things that they do, you know. Uh, no. I mean, what's the difference? I mean, most people that earn, let's say, 100 million dollars a year, maybe they're spending 10 million a year. If that of their 100 million, I mean, that's what they're spending. The rest of it is being invested. Right. And, and so If you raise taxes on somebody that earns that much money, you're not going to reduce the money they spend enjoying their lives. They're going to continue to live a a grand life, uh, which is the reward for the income that they're earning and the value that they uh, that they added to generate that income. What's going to happen is they're going to have to substantially reduce their investments. And maybe to another extent, they're charitable giving, right? Money that they could have given to charity, they're going to give to the government instead, or money that they could have invested in a business, in uh, capital formation, job creation, that money won't be invested. That money is going to be sent to the government. And so the question is, what is better for the economy? Having a billionaire invest $30 million a year productively in businesses that are producing goods and providing services and improving people's lives and, you know, creating employment? Or is it better to give that money to the government and have the government spend it? Well, history shows you that it's always better to have the private sector invest money than the government spend money. And so if we if we turn private sector investment to government spending, we are going to have a lower standard of living. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, look at all the examples, you know, of, you, know, you know, communist countries where the government spends everything and it's a complete disaster because you have nothing because the government doesn't produce effectively. So we don't want billionaires sending their money to Washington. We want them investing it productively
1: in the economy rather than have it be squandered by politicians. So we're going to now move to the quick fire and fun round, Peter. So oh, oh,
0: I wanted one more point because the yeah, quote please. that... The, the tweet that I was referring to, too, about you know when they they pretend they're going after billionaires, mm-hmm. that's the, in the in the um, the infrastructure bill that passed, um, and I think also in the Build Back Better, you know you know but that one didn't pass, but there is a lot of money that they're setting aside for added enforcement at the IRS, right, and supposedly they want to force the billionaires to pay more taxes by more heavily auditing them. right? So they want they want to beef up IRS audits so we'd have more compliance. And my point was that the, it's really not the billionaires and the millionaires that they're aiming at because, you know, they are taking advantage by and large of legal uh, uh, loopholes or, you know, the, the, the tax code. And they are, you know, reducing their taxes legally. They're not evading their taxes. They're avoiding their taxes. And that's not illegal. Uh, You're allowed to arrange your affairs in a way that minimizes your taxes. And if you take advantage of the laws that are written and that results in lower taxes, well, the government can't get any more money from you when they audit you if you're legally uh, reducing your tax liability. The people who are cheating the most are the middle class. Uh, are the working poor. Now, I I don't have anything against the middle class. I'm not saying they're inherently bad. What I'm saying is the middle class doesn't have the ability to avoid taxes legally the way the rich do. They don't they earn their money in wages. I mean, they they, they don't they don't have the loopholes. So what middle class people do is they cheat. That's how they limit their taxes. They cheat. They 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 don't report all their income. Let's say they work for cash. Right? You're, you know, somebody pays you in cash for something. You don't report it. You just put it in your pocket. You don't put it on your your 1040, right? Or uh, you inflate your deductions. You know, you you deduct stuff that really wasn't a business expense, but you just claim it anyway, right? Or you 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 inflate your charitable deductions. You claim you make you gave money to charities, but you really didn't do it, right? This is happening a lot for the middle class. And one of the reasons they do it is because that's the only way they can make ends meet. They can't afford to pay what they legally owe. The only way they can feed their families and pay the rent is to cheat on their taxes. So they, they do it, you know. Um, and, and I'm sure that all of this new money for compliance is going to be used to try to catch the middle class tax cheat to try to squeeze more money out of them because they're not going to get anything really from the rich because they're, they're legally avoiding their taxes. And, and if they were cheating, you know, they probably would have caught them. And, you know, people who are very rich, I mean, the stakes are too high. They're, they don't want to cheat on their taxes. It's not worth the risk, especially when they have so many legal ways to minimize their taxes. But even when you legally minimize your taxes, I still think they're too high. I still would like to see a country where everybody pays less taxes. But in order to do that, we need a much smaller government, and which is what I'm in favor of. I want to reduce the size of government so it's a smaller burden on the economy so that everybody can be relieved of the burden of
1: paying for that government. Um, could you tell us about your podcast, where we can go, and what's the main sort of theme of it? Yeah, well, it's the Peter Schiff Show podcast. You can listen
0: to it on Schiffradio.com. You can also go to YouTube. The Schiff Report is my YouTube channel, I think I'm getting close to 500,000 subscribers. So more people are hearing about me. But I generally do maybe two podcasts a week, sometimes three, sometimes more, depending on what's going on and how much time I have. But I talk about economics, I talk about politics, I talk about the markets. I think I bring a rather uh, fresh perspective, a point of view that's not often heard on mainstream media outlets. So I think it's very important that people uh, listen on a regular basis, uh, whether they ultimately follow my investment advice or not. I mean, I think to the extent that people have money, they should follow my advice. Uh, but if you don't have money, you should at least understand what's going on. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and spread the word, get your friends to listen too. You know, it's not, we, we got we to get more people Uh, to know what's really happening because the government is using our ignorance against us. And so the more people I can help educate, the harder it will be for the government to fool us.
1: Thank you, Peter. And then if you could pick one of your books, so we mentioned a few of them before. So we have got Crash Proof, Crash Proof 2.0, how an economy grows and why it crashes. All this will go in the show notes. We'll put it at, at, at the end on the edit. Um, and then that was it. Re- Did you say real crash was one? Yeah, of well? I mean,
0: if you're just going to start with one book, you might as well start with the most recent. Now I haven't written a book in a while. I think the real crash uh, revised edition, which just had some extra material, came out in 2013. So it's been quite a number of years since I've written a book. It's basically I've been updating the books on my podcast. So I've been communicating through that medium rather than writing additional books. But that one is the most recent and I think it has uh, the most material, especially when it comes to the solutions, because that book I write about a lot about what the government needs to do in the, you know, in the aftermath of the crash, you know, to put us on a more solid foundation. So a lot of people, you know, are interested in, in what the solutions are, not, hey, Peter, you, you know what? Yes, you have pointed out the problem, but what do we do? So there's a lot more solutions in the real, real crash uh, than in my prior book. So I would start with that book and then then work backwards if you want to uh, read more, which uh, I would hope people would want to do once they once they read that one.
1: Thank you, Peter. So this quick fire and fun round Peter, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken?
0: Yeah, I, I guess I, I mean, maybe the I, probably the biggest risk is starting a business. That's probably the biggest risk that most people take.
1: What's the best advice you've ever received, Peter? Well, the best
0: advice I probably ever got was to buy Bitcoin when it was really cheap, but I didn't do it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, yeah that, that could be it. And I, I don't have to necessarily take the advice at I, first, I, when you asked the question, I was thinking about what's the best advice that I took. But actually, it's advice that I didn't take. <laughs> I got I got some really good advice early on to buy it. Peter, what's the worst advice you ever received? The worst advice, probably to buy Bitcoin, too. But <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, but no, I've gotten I've probably got a lot of bad advice, uh, you know, Some of it I've ignored, not all of it. More recently, people keep telling me to buy Bitcoin.
1: I think I know the answer to this, but it'd still be good to ask it. And I did a poll on my Facebook page and it was a huge landslide of a vote. But would you rather give one billion of capital to be allocated to Elon Musk or the government and why? If it was, if my choice was to
0: invest a billion dollars, if I had a billion dollars lying around that I needed to invest, And my goal was not necessarily to enrich myself, but to do something good for society. Do I think I would help society more by giving a guy like Elon Musk a billion dollars to invest in growing a business, in plant and equipment, in uh, research and development? Do I think that would be better for society than just sending a billion dollars to Washington so they can divvy it up and send out checks to their friends uh, and you know the voters to, to buy their votes and to reassure their reelection. I mean, sure, if people got checks from the government uh, in the short run, yeah, that'd be great. Right. They'd go out and they would buy stuff and they would have something they didn't have. But then the money is blown and it's gone and it's like an adrenaline shot and it wears off. But if I invest the money or somebody invests my money in the private sector and we produce capital that is able to generate goods and services into the future to raise living standards over the long run, then that's much better for society to invest in growing the stock of capital and creating new businesses and new research and development than just having a party and just blowing a bunch of money, going out and buying stuff. And of course, if Americans got a bunch of cash to buy stuff, what would they do? They would go buy stuff made in China, which is what we did with the stimulus money. Right. How is that helping our economy to go out and buy more Chinese made products? I mean, it's good in the short run because you get a new a new thing that you didn't have. Uh, but then the money is gone and the product depreciates, and then you've destroyed all the capital. So much better off uh, for entrepreneurs to invest money than Washington to spend it.
1: In 15 seconds or less, Peter, what's the future
0: Uh, of money? I think the future of money is the past of money. I think I think we're going forward to the gold standard. Uh, That's what's worked successfully in the past. And that's what will work in the future. Maybe it will be modernized. So maybe the Internet and blockchain will pay a part in the future gold standard. But we're going back to sound money. Peter, is tax theft? Well, I think taxation, if it is not for the general uh, welfare, uh, basically amounts to theft that the government is taking money from one taxpayer and simply redirecting it to another. uh, You're taking money uh, from somebody against their will and giving it to somebody else who didn't earn it. I think that's theft. And I think if taxation is done illegally, right which is the case in the united states i think a lot of taxation is you know violates the us constitution i think uh, the government is acting outside the law and when you take property outside the law it's theft and so in many cases taxation
1: does equal theft what's the most expensive thing you've ever bought oh a house <laughs> are you allowed to say how much oh a lot <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but i t- but, you know, I, I, I can sell it for a lot more than I paid, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm, living, I'm living in a big real estate bubble here in Puerto Rico. Yeah. But, you know, a house is probably the most expensive thing that most people buy. Although I guess you got the billionaires and they buy these super yachts for hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's probably the most expensive thing that anybody buys. But I, I don't own one of those.
1: <laughs> Peter, is money the root of all evil?
0: No, no, I think, I I think it's the other way around. It's maybe it's the root of all good. I think that's what Ayn Rand said. Uh, But, you know, it's the pursuit of money. People forget that. How do you earn money? I earn money by enriching my fellow man, by by coming up with ways to please other people. I have to invent uh, goods, uh, products that other people want to buy. And I've got to make them cheaper than, than my competitors. I mean, I have to win people's money, right? I, if I'm a businessman, I don't put a gun to my customer's head. My customers have to voluntarily give me their money because they value the goods and services I'm providing them more than the money they're paying me. And so to the extent that I've acquired money, it's because I've helped satisfy all of these needs and desires of all these people. Uh, and so you want people out there Uh, pursuing money because they get money by making your lives better. You know, we're all talking about, hey, cancer, do we want somebody to to cure cancer? Sure. You know, do you mind that the person that cures cancer gets rich? No. Why should you care if the guy that cured cancer gets rich? I want the guy that cures cancer to get rich because that's why somebody's going to cure cancer, because they want to get rich. And they know if they cure cancer, they, they can get rich, right? We, we want people to get rich doing things that improve our lives because that's how we get them to do it. Because when you take those incentives away and you try to, you know, give the government monopoly on that, then, then nothing gets cured. Nothing gets done because politicians don't invent things. They don't create things. They just redistribute what other people create.
1: Would you choose, Peter, 10 million cash? Or 10 million followers on your YouTube channel and Peter Schiff show, and why? Well, you know I haven't
0: done the calculation as to how much 10 million followers might be worth. I mean it depends on who's following me. I guess if it was 10 million bots that really didn't even give a damn what I what I had to say, but it, you know it, it, I would have it would depend on the followers. Because if I had the if I had 10 million of the right followers, it'd be worth a lot more than 10 million dollars uh because i i think i could uh succeed in monetizing those followers uh to a much higher uh degree uh than that cash of course if i if i took the 10 million cash i wouldn't leave it in cash very long i would quickly turn it into something real uh you know i'd invest it because i wouldn't want to you know let inflation wipe it out
1: i've had so much fun on this um chat interview peter thanks so much for doing it i'm really grateful where can okay. we follow you? Give us a, um, you know, you're on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. What are your usernames so we can follow you?
0: Well, I mean, it's Peter Schiff. So on Twitter, on Peter Schiff, you'll, I, I finally got verified last year, so I got the check mark, so you'll see me. I got about six hundred thousand followers and change, six hundred twenty-five thousand followers on Twitter. Uh, but I'm also Peter Schiff on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, verified there as well. Not as many followers. I haven't been putting out as much content there. Um, and the YouTube channel, again, I said, is Peter Schiff. So just, you know, keep, you know, using, looking for my name. There's some fake Peter Schiff's out there, but they <laughs> won't have nearly as many followers. So just ignore all those and just, you know, just look for just look for the verified account or the one that has a lot of followers, at least in relation to those. Um, but, you know, go to my website, you know, go to Europe Pacific Capital's website, Europac.com. Go to my asset management company website. That's up on my above my shoulder. uh, EpacFunds.com to learn about the funds that I manage. Talk to the uh, the reps that work for me and helping uh, to work with my clients and, you know, building their portfolios and managing their money and helping them manage their own portfolios. uh, Getting money out of U.S. assets, overpriced U.S. assets and an overpriced currency uh, into value and dividend paying stocks around the world and currencies that are going to appreciate. Uh, you know, look for gold and silver, you know, Shift Gold is the uh, gold company that I'm working with. I started it. uh, You know, I founded the company. Shiftgold.com is uh, where you'll find it. But, you know, we've got the best prices on uh, gold and silver bullion. And, you know, no one's going to try to upsell you into, uh, you know, uh, numismatics or so-called rare coins that you don't really need. Unfortunately, a lot of the gold and silver dealers are doing that these days. And, It's a shame that that happens, but it'll never happen at Shift Gold. And then, yeah, look for my books, my books on Amazon. I have some books uh, on my own website, shiftbooks.com, but you can pretty much find most of my stuff somewhere on Amazon or eBay. I mean, if it's not new, uh, you can pick up a used copy from somebody.
1: Peter, thanks a lot for taking time today. I know we went a little bit more than the allotted time, but I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. Okay, take care.